today, we're going to be focusing on prophetic sketches. So we have three different um, prophetic figures in the scriptures that we're going to just uh, unfold and help us to see, again, in a fresh way, just how prophets are to operate. So I'm going to open with a word of prayer, commit our time to the Lord, and then we'll have the same format as we did yesterday. So after my teaching, uh, Ben and Greg will join us and we'll be ministering to some of you as, as candidates. So Jesus, we thank you that you're the chief prophet, that you're the head of the church, that you are the fountainhead and all things flow from you. And we want, Father God, our spirit, our hearts, and our minds to be aligned with you so that we can be the biggest blessing, Father God, to your people. Thank you for just receptive ears and hearts that want to learn and continue to help us grow in this area and our understanding. We thank you for this day. Thank you, Father God, for your blessing on us. We commit this day of conferencing to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last night I kept going back and forth between two sketches. The, the scheduled topic is for me to talk about Barnabas, and I also have a very uh, wonderful teaching on Moses, and I said, oh, which one should I do, Moses or Barnabas and Moses? Lord, help me. I thought about like just saying, hey, what, do you get, what would you guys like to hear about? Both. Uh, both. <laughs> okay, let's, um, let's, let's look at Barnabas, and uh, if for some reason we get uh, more time, we can also dive in a little bit uh, to Moses. So, you know, when you think about the great prophets of the Bible, uh, names like Isaiah and Elijah and Jeremiah, uh, these are the, the names that jump to mind. And that's one of the things that we have to work on in the body of Christ is that there actually is a New Testament paradigm for prophets, that there is a new model. And in the Old Testament, we had the prophet, priest, and king model, right? And the prophets loom large. And as we've been sharing in the Gospel of Matthew, the highest sort of spiritual designation to the people of Israel is if you were to be called a prophet. So we have these very, very large heroic figures in the Old Testament, and people will take those pictures and they'll bring it into the New Covenant, but actually they haven't studied properly what God is doing in the New Covenant. And so what, we, what I want to do this morning is to look at a, a world-class prophet that is not, all, not ignored, but sometimes overlooked in the excitement of the prophetic picture that's in our mind. And I want to look at the person of Barnabas. And he was crucial to the development uh, of the early church. He made history in the book of Acts when he became the founding pastor of the first Gentile church uh, in Acts 13, as Acts 11 and Acts 13 is where it's described for us. And it was because of Barnabas' leadership that the gospel was opened up from the Jews to the rest of the world. Right, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And so Barnabas was the tip of the spear, and he's the one that opened up the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea uh, and began to really push it out into the Gentile world. And he was an indispensable leader in the early church and in the work of the Great Commission. But here's the key part, he was also a prophet. So if I were to ask you, Take away Barnabas' name. Name a New Testament prophet. Okay, John the Baptist is a crossover prophet. I should have taken his name out of the equation. <laughs> we can't think of anyone, typically, right? But actually, if you read thoroughly the scriptures in the New Testament, you'll find that there's a rich body of scriptures that is given to us. And 
none more important than Barnabas. In fact, the New Testament gives more detail about Barnabas' life than even John the Baptist. So what does that tell us if we have all this biography about Barnabas? Namely, that God wants, to, wants us to see Barnabas as a template for what New Testament prophets should look like. You know, the Old Testament picture that we have is brooding, angry, scary person to be around. And so we have to sort of reprogram our picture of what it means to be a New Testament prophet in New Testament times. And my method this morning is maybe not so much teaching as it is storytelling, um, is to just pull out different elements of Barnabas's life and to paint for us a picture of what it means to be a prophet uh, in the 21st century. And so I'm going to break it down into sort of two sections. One is the personal life of Barnabas, and then one is related to his leadership capacity. And when I talk about Barnabas as a prophetic leader, I'm specifically going to focus on his emotional intelligence or his EQ. And uh, the reason I want to do that is because a lot of times we think, well, prophets don't have EQ, right? They're just fierce. They're these domineering kind of personalities. But as we see in the New Testament, particularly with Barnabas, he had extremely high uh, EQ. So let's begin with the, the personal part. Barnabas started out as a regular member that loved his local church. Barnabas started out as a regular member that loved his local church. Now, this may seem super simple, but it's so foundational because a lot of prophets are not part of a local church. That is immediate red flag. Like, if you hear about prophetic ministry and they don't have a local church that they're part of, that means that there's a foundation piece in their life that hasn't properly been nurtured. The Bible says that when the outpouring happened at Pentecost, Barnabas was there. So when we read the amazing events in Acts chapter 2 and the fire falling on the 120 in the upper room, Barnabas was part of that group. He was there to hear the wind and to see the uproar and the fire that's being poured out. Now remember, he doesn't know he's a prophet yet. He does, the calling hasn't come into being yet. He is just part of this next revival that's been poured out. John the Baptist ignited one, Jesus ignited one, and now we have a third revival back to back to back, and he is right there in the middle of it. So he's there, he sees just the crowds running towards the upper room, and he experienced firsthand this outpouring. And so just like many of the, of the other believers, he was swept up into the move of God. He was joining the ranks of the believers that came together with one heart and one mind, as it says in Acts chapter 2. So his start began uh, as a local church member in the midst of revival, and he loved his local church and he was devoted to it. Now, this is so essential because Ephesians chapter 4 says that God has given the fivefold offices. Now, we teach this in our e-classes. What's the hand illustration of the fivefold prophets? So the, prof the apostle is the thumb. He's the one that touches all the offices. The prophet's the finger. The evangelist, I won't put it up by itself, is the one that reaches out the farthest. The pastor is the ring finger. And the teacher is the little one because he gets in your ear. So Ephesians chapter 4, it says that God has given the fivefold coaches to equip the saints. Well, if they don't have that grounding in the local church, if they don't understand local church life, then how can they do that? So we see here a, a very crucial foundation in that Barnabas started just at that ground level. Um, what we also see is that just like so many were touched in that early uh, revival, 
there was this heart of generosity and a desire to give. And historians tell us that when Barnabas gave to the local church, he not only gave generously, but he gave sacrificially. And the Bible records that he sold a tract of land in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. It says that he sold a tract of land and donated the proceeds by placing it at the feet of the apostles. Now, this was not just an ordinary piece of property. This piece of property was located in the rich, fruit-growing lands of Cyprus. In other words, it was prime property. It had very strong income-producing ability, and it was worth more than any regular sort of stony field in Palestine. So when he gave of that property, the church understood, wow, this guy really, really gave out of his love. And the value of that property and and the income-producing ability signified, obviously, his big heart and his love for God's work. So his generosity was a display of his big-heartedness and, again, his commitment to the local church. Well, we also see that Barnabas was a great encourager. You know, he was deeply... uh, he was deeply touched. I should say the apostles were deeply touched by Barnabas's unfettered giving. Uh, the apostles changed his birth name from Joseph to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And as we'll see that this is what prophets do. They are encouragers. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you know, the purpose of prophecy is to exhort, comfort, challenge, and to build us up. So not only was Barnabas brought into the fellowship of believers, he was also now brought into the fellowship of the apostles. So this name change was a a term of endearment for the Jerusalem leadership. And, you know, it's funny how money is is kind of a sensitive topic. But, you know, God actually uses money as an avenue of grace. Like when we're in a place of need or we're in a place where we're short and we're praying and God provides money, there's grace that comes to us. And so in the early church, as it was exploding with people, as it was reviving, there was a lot of financial need. Now, the scripture doesn't make a big point of that, but obviously, just practically speaking, you've got a growing church, you have to you know, build out infrastructure. And so when Barnabas brought this great gift to the church, it touched their hearts. And there was a grace that was released by Barnabas to the apostles and to the local church. And again, this is a picture of what prophetic ministry does. It's meant to release that grace. And so they were so touched that they renamed him and called him the son of encouragement. Well, as we go on, we can talk about after Jesus' resurrection and the apostles were told by Jesus, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So unbeknownst to the apostles, when the gospel was to go into new places, they would have to penetrate into new cultural terrain. And... The apostles did not realize that their their Hebrew mindset was so set inside of them that actually other ambassadors had to be sent into new lands. They were unaware that their own Jewish enculturation would actually be an obstacle and that God would have to provide new ambassadors to go to new places. So Barnabas was going to be one of those ambassadors. And Barnabas helped the gospel break into new spheres of expansion beyond the Jewish environments and contexts. So he helped the gospel cross over from just the Jerusalem setting into the Judean and Sumerian setting. And so in that sense, you know, Barnabas was very much uh, a history maker. He was a man that could cross cultures. Now, one of the things I appreciate so much about working with Ben and Greg is that they're able to go into many different cultures. So Ben's, I mean, Greg's ministry actually started in Latin America. And, you know, that's a, a big world in and of itself. And then he's also of late been moving into the Asian world. And 
to have the ability to, you know, navigate different cultural terrains, how people speak, how they think. Like when we prophesy to people in Asia, they're usually very flat in their expression. They don't say anything. They're not emotional at all. It's just like prophesying to a stone wall. That's very hard to do. You know, I came from the American culture where they're very expressive, right? You see sports culture in America. I mean, that's just how Americans are in general. So we could literally be prophesying to people in the United States, and they're like, oh, I can't believe God is saying this. You know, you get sort of instant feedback. You go to Taiwan, you go to Asia, and it's like stone wall. I mean, you could be reading their mail. You could be just like, you know, reading their social security number. It's like, and so that's a cultural way that they're responding. You have to get used to these different things. And so Barnabas was appointed by the Lord to be that person that could go into different cultures. And so there's a flexibility, a fluidity that they have in the Holy Spirit that prophets have that's really, really important. But it also speaks to uh, Barnabas' persona as a man of humility. Um, Actually, Barnabas was a very wealthy man, as we know by the property that he donated, but he was also a Levite, okay, which means that he was part of the religious order, And so he had this unique mix of religious heritage and material wealth. As such, um, he was a man that straddled two worlds, the Hebrew world and the Greek world. And so as a Levite, he could have taken pride in his standing among the religious elite. Like his family would have been involved in temple service, and so he could have very much said, hey, I'm part of this religious order, this is my place in society. He could have taken pride in his wealth but he didn't either. And uh, Barnabas just had that servant-heartedness about him, had that humility. And so when revival swept through Jerusalem, he blended in with members uh, just like the rest of the members in the church, giving himself to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So he didn't really leverage any kind of special status. So this just little brief sketch is meant to just show us that prophets are supposed to be normal people, right? They're supposed to be in amongst the people. So like you know, again, Ben and Greg, they're very accessible. They, they have tennis shoes, they wear jeans. But how many people have actually seen kind of like wacky prophetic stuff out there in the body of Christ? Okay, so there are churches now in Taiwan that specifically invite us as an entire team because they want their churches to see an actual team at work. They don't want to just see some special prophet come in do his hand-waving things. They want to reimagine and repicture for people what it is that a New Testament prophet is supposed to look like. So the fact that, Bar- uh, that Greg and Ben and myself, we go into these places, we make ourselves accessible, we work as a team, that's helping to repicture for people what prophetic ministry is about. And so we see this picture very much in, in the life of Barnabas, and this is what we want to reflect. This is what we want to mirror, and this is what we want to model. And uh, it's a special thing to be able to help educate people and help them to be upgraded in their understanding of prophetic ministry. Okay, so let me talk a little bit about Barnabas' ministry life. And since Sam requested that we talk about Barnabas and Moses, I'm going to sort of condense this, and then I'm also going to talk about Moses uh, as well. So Barnabas had very high EQ, and uh, emotional intelligence is defined as the ability to get along with people. And so this may sound simple, but as we know, getting along with people is not always easy, right? People are people. Um, And there are four categories of emotional intelligence. The first is self-awareness. 
the ability to recognize and understand your own moods, emotions, and drivers, as well as the effect on others. So when we do pastoral counseling, <clears throat> a lot of times it's just helping people. This is sort of, you know, a wellness, helping people to get in touch with how they're feeling. And that may seem to be like a common thing, but that's an, a very important thing is self-awareness. Because if you don't know what you're feeling, then you can't really address the issue. But people who have high emotional intelligence already have a self-awareness that's being built into them. And if you don't have self-awareness, you know, you hear the phrase acting out. Well, why are you acting out? Well, I don't know why I'm acting out. Okay, I'm angry or I'm rageful or I'm, or I'm sad or whatever. But people who have self-awareness can move into the second component of emotional intelligence, which is self-regulation. The ability to control or redirect disruptive impulses and moods. So this is where the fruit of the Holy Spirit comes in, the fruit of self-control. It's one thing to say, okay, I'm super angry, but if you just act out of that anger, you're not acting with intelligence. So you have to also couple that and pair that with self-regulation. A third aspect of uh, emotional intelligence is empathy. It's ability to understand the emotional makeup of other people. So now you're moving beyond the sphere of self, and you're moving into the sphere of where other people are at. And then <clears throat> the fourth component of EI is social skill. So you understand where people are at, but then you're able to minister to them based on where they're at. It's a proficiency in managing relationships and building networks. So the most <clears throat> emotionally intelligent person in the world is God. And prophets are used as a conduit of God's emotional intelligence. So God understands where you're at. He comes and he brings the right word at the right time in the right way. Sometimes we need comfort. Sometimes we need challenge. Sometimes we need exhortation. But God understands where you're at, and then he speaks to that place. So prophetic acuity is extremely important. And we see this uh, with Barnabas on several levels. <clears throat> the first is that of course, Barnabas had emotional intelligence with people, and I want to bring up a couple examples of how this was played out in his ministry. <clears throat> Actually, Barnabas' name means comforter, uh, but his name also encompasses the idea of refreshment. And so when you combine this with his, now, his original name was Joseph, which means God increases. So you have Barnabas, his name means comforter or idea of refreshment. His original name was increase. And so you bring these together, and it's, a, again, a word picture for us of prophetic ministry that prophets are come to comfort, refresh, and help people increase. That's their very name. Now, you know, the last couple sessions, we've had people prophesied over. We had people prophesied over last night. And that prophetic word, what does it do? It enlarges people. It increases them. It comforts them. It sets them into their place of destiny. And so it's a, it's a very powerful thing, and it's a very supernatural thing. So in Barnabas' ministry, there are two examples that I want to just highlight for us which illustrate um, you know, his high IQ. The first is related to the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, we're given the story of Saul's conversion uh, as a persecutor of the church. And, of course, Acts 9 describes for us um, Paul's stunning turnaround and how God apprehended him on the road to Damascus. So one moment Saul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, and in the next, he was proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. 
So a lot of people are extremely skeptical. Okay, this guy was persecuting, hauling people off to jail. And the next moment, he's preaching Jesus, like, what's going on? And so really, the public sentiment was very much against Saul. People were very suspicious, and they were at arm's length to him. But what happened is that Barnabas sensed something about Saul. He sensed that the conversion was authentic. He sensed that the conversion was real. So Barnabas became a champion of Saul. And why is it that Barnabas risked his reputation to go and to get behind and to stand with Saul? It's because he had prophetic insight, and it's because he had that emotional intelligence. Now, one of the things that happens is that when prophets come and they start prophesying over people, they say things... To the natural mind, they would say, what? I can't believe that they're saying that about that person. Because we know some of the hidden things that are going on in people's lives, and we think they're disqualified, they're jerks, they shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't be spoken in such a way. But God sees from a different perspective. And so here, Barnabas was moving in his prophetic gift, and he saw the potential that was in Saul, in the apostle Paul. And so he became a champion of him. But Barnabas actually risked his reputation in speaking up for the Apostle Paul because what if he made a mistake? The Bible tells us that Barnabas took Saul and presented him to the 12 apostles. He said 11, but 12 now. He said, listen, this guy is for real. But what if it turned out that Barnabas's quote, intuition was wrong? Well, he was moving in that prophetic intelligence. He was moving in that place where he saw where Saul was going and he needed a champion and so... Barnabas was going to do that. So he took it upon himself to make sure that Saul had a fair showing before the people and the leaders. And as a result of that, Barnabas and Saul became very strongly bonded. And one of the things that's so unique about prophetic words is, you know, we go around and, and, and the Lord uses us to give prophecies to different people. And there is a moment of cementing when you're the vessel to give a word to someone. And we can go back to churches years later, and they'll come up and say, you know, Pastor Rich or Pastor Greg or Ben, you gave me this word, and my life was changed. And there's that moment of just, like, connection, the divine connection. And that's what happens is that when you're used by the Lord and God uses prophets to speak into people's lives, there is just that cementing, that the joints coming together. So Barnabas's emotional intelligence was used very profoundly in Saul's life, and he needed that. He needed someone to back him, and Barnabas was the one to do that. A second example in which we see is with John Mark. Now, um, <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas had taken John Mark on their first missions trip as a helper, but John Mark quickly abandoned them in the city of Perga. So on the very first missions trip, the Holy Spirit says to Barnabas and Paul, it's time for you to begin church planting. Barnabas says, hey, I want to take my cousin along, John Mark. He's going to be a great helper. But literally, hardly you know, a few days into the trip, John Mark says, this is too hard for me. I don't want to travel on donkey. I don't want to walk on dusty roads. And you know, the food's not good. The combinations are good. So I'm going to go home. And of course, as it turns out, Paul saw John Mark as being unprepared, weak, and shouldn't have been on the trip. So fast forward, and they're going to have the second trip, and Barnabas wants to take John Mark again, and Paul says, absolutely not. This guy failed us. And so there's a sharp disagreement, as the Scriptures describes, and Paul and Barnabas actually split ways. So Paul then brings Silas on the trip, and Barnabas then departs from that storyline. 
But Barnabas continued to encourage and continued to build up John Mark. And we see later on that there's a reconciliation between John Mark and between Paul, and we see that there was a development that went on uh, even though John Mark had shown himself to be spiritually weak. And John Mark actually is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. So here he was, he started out as someone that failed on a missions trip, and then later God used him to actually write a gospel. So what does that tell you about Barnabas' role in Mark's life? And this is what the prophetic does. It comes along people who have gone through maybe profound failure, where they've gone through a time where they feel like they're completely disqualified, but the word of the Lord comes and says, no, I'm going to pick you up, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to you know, recommission you, to the destiny that I have for you. So Barnabas, again, you know, exhibits for us just this very high prophetic uh, EQ. We also see him doing this as a leader. And when the Jerusalem apostles sent him down to Antioch, this was a brand new thing that was happening. Uh, fire was breaking among the Gentiles. This is the first time that the gospel was being preached by the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. Prior to this, it was always a Jew speaking to the Jews or the Jews speaking to the Gentiles, but now it was the Gentiles speaking to the Gentiles, and a church was popping up. So the Jews said, I mean, the apostles said, okay, Barnabas, you go down there and you take a look to see what's happening. So when Barnabas went down there, how would he evaluate whether this church plant was of the Lord or not? And the scripture says that the hand of the Lord was with them, a large number of those people that heard the gospel were turning to Jesus. And so when Barnabas got there on the scene, now he had to assess the situation as a leader that had never been assessed before. And he would have to discern, okay, was God in this or not? And Acts 9.23 tells us that he witnessed the grace of God, and when he did, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So Barnabas didn't employ this rule book or a doctrine test. Instead, he just flowed with the sense that the grace of God was in this place, and therefore he had to get behind it and to really support what God was doing. So the evidence of God's grace was the telling signs of life. Again, this shows Barnabas's just high prophetic insight into the situation. It wasn't about religious uh, conformity. It was about if, if the life of God was here and the grace of God was moving in, the, in, in this congregation. <clears throat> so uh, a couple other things here before I transition to uh, uh, a couple things about Moses here. He was also very keenly aware that this church had to be built up because there were just new believers and there were new converts, and so they had to be built up in their faith. And uh, he went on to develop some very key organizational frameworks uh, for the early church. He developed what's called uh, educational model, which we call a discipleship model. Back then, there was no discipleship model. There was no educational model. And so Barnabas was the first one to have that insight and to set up that framework by which uh, the young believers could really grow in their faith. That's when he brought Paul into the situation so that there would be a teacher in their midst, someone that could sow very strongly into them. One other thing I want to just um, highlight for us is that there was an inferiority kind of 
complex that the Gentiles had. Like, they were second-class Christians because the Christians in Jerusalem, they were, the, they were the first Christians. They were the real Christians. And so Barnabas had to really come in there and pastor them and to help them to understand that they weren't second-class this was one of the biggest challenges that he had to face was to remove that sense of inferiority. Even though the epicenter of revival was in Jerusalem and all the top apostles were Hebrews, it did not mean that the Gentile believers were second class in any way. And so Paul had taught that Christ is the dividing wall, that the wall between the Jews and Gentiles come down, there is one new man. The new covenant did not distinguish on the basis of ethnicity, Rather, it included people on the basis of their faith. Therefore, all races and faces were welcome. And so as the Gentiles received this teaching and received this encouragement, they were able to settle in to their social identity and to realize that they were equal partners in the work of God. So I want to, this is an abbreviated version, but I want us to begin to see how New Testament prophets um, operated. They come into local church situations. They're involved in church planting situations. They're there to settle people's hearts. They're there to establish them in the identity of Christ. They're there to develop leaders. They move with a great uh, ease and with great skill because the Holy Spirit um, is moving through them. And they're very much lovers of the church. So here's one of the things that we see is that in the Old Testament, it seems like the prophets are always haranguing the church. They're always beating down the church. Part of the reason why we see that, and it's true, the Old Testament prophets are very much challenging the people of God, but you have to look at it from the context of the timeline. So God has been patient with the nation of Israel for decades and even hundreds of years before he sends a prophet in. Okay, and so we get this very condensed picture. (coughs) (coughs) Pardon me. We get this very condensed picture. All of a sudden, the prophets pop up, and we just read them consecutively. And so we think, man, what's wrong with these guys? They're always criticizing. But it's because God has sent these prophets in after decades and hundreds of years of patience, and then the message comes. But in fact, the prophets of the Old Testament had a deep love for the people of Israel. They were able to speak the truth in love. But what we see in the New Testament is this more developed picture of how the prophets really love the local church and they see the church as the apple of God's eye. Okay, so let me pair um, Barnabas with Moses. And, you know, Moses is the one that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. So, obviously, he had a very vaunted position in the kingdom. And so we know that he is you know, one of the great prophets. And what I want to do is I sketch out this thing with Moses is to just talk about his deep heart as a prophet and his love for the covenant people. So I'm going to cover five points for us here if you're taking notes. The first is that prophets are sensitive to God's heart and purposes. And I want to um, look at Moses from the book of Numbers. So we're going to be concentrated just on about four different chapters here in Numbers chapter, starting in Numbers chapter 11. Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all God's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So what was going on in this situation? 
The nation of Israel was complaining. They didn't have very good food. And God says, I can't take the complaining of all these people. And so God says, okay, I want you to appoint 70 elders, and they're going to bear the leadership responsibility with you. So God says, fantastic. He's going to have this commissioning service. So 70 now new leaders from the nation of Israel is going to come to this commissioning service, and 68 of them appear for the commissioning service. And two of them forget to make it to the meeting on time. And so as the commissioning service is going on, the Spirit of God falls, and they start to prophesy. Well, it turns out that the two guys that did not come to the tabernacle for the commissioning time were also prophesying in the camp. And so the people were reporting to Moses, and his assistant at the time was Joshua. And they're saying, listen, they're also prophesying out there in the camp. And so Joshua says to them, stop. Moses, tell those two guys to stop because they're not in the proper place, and they're not following the proper protocol. It's at that point that Moses says, are you jealous for my sake with that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them? So this is an amazing statement by Moses. He's a leader of Israel. He's done amazing miracles uh, in overcoming Pharaoh. The nation had an incredible encounter with God at Sinai. And so he could say, yeah, you know what, Joshua, you're right. These guys are out of order. But that's not what Moses did. Moses understood something of what God was doing, that God was putting his spirit on these leaders. And so as the story goes, there's these two guys, and you know what their names are? The two guys that missed their commissioning was Eldad and Medad. So in Numbers chapter 11, verse 26, their names are actually given. So the Spirit came upon all these people, including Eldad and Medad, and they began to prophesy, <coughs> and Moses did not discipline them. And why was it that Moses didn't discipline them? Well, it's because Moses was an Old Testament hero with a New Testament heart. Moses was an Old Testament hero with a New Testament heart. Moses was basically saying that eventually God is going to cause his people all to be prophets, not just a few, but all God's people. And although Moses was part of an exclusive company of leaders, he understood God's ultimate purpose. There would be a day in which the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh and all mankind. And the Spirit would be poured on such a way that everyone would have access to the Lord. We know that that happened at Pentecost. So Moses could have easily been jealous for himself. He could have protected his own privileged position, but he didn't because he saw God's heart. Moses was humble and sensitive to God's purpose, which is the first point I want to bring out here. Instead of closing his heart, he opened his heart to the greater purpose. Me and the 70 elders might prophesy now, but there's going to come a time in which God will raise up an entire prophetic nation. That nation is the church. Let me just say something about Eldad and Medad because this is so interesting. What were they thinking? Why were they late to their own commissioning? This was the biggest moment of their lives, and they were still late, and they were in the camp. I mean, I guess they were very bad managers of time. I mean, why didn't their wives remind them, like, come on, you got to get there. Maybe they were still ironing their shirts or cleaning their sandals or getting their hair right. All we know is that they messed up and they weren't on time. 
So the criticism could have easily gone out and said, see, Moses, they're not supposed to be leaders after all. This is their first day on the job, and they haven't even showed up on time. Maybe choosing them was a mistake. Um, maybe these 68 elders would have been enough, or maybe Moses should find two others to replace them. But the fact that Moses was not upset with Eldad and Medad says something about the prophet's heart and knowing a person's inner motive. Um, and we have Eldads and Medads in our church, okay? And yes, they can be late to meetings, and yes, they're not following protocol, and yes, they're a little bit sort of out of the box, but Moses saw into their hearts. And even though they messed up, their hearts were right. And because their hearts were right, because they had a right spirit, God did not disqualify them. So this you know, shows us something beautiful about God's prophetic purposes. Sometimes the leaders don't have it all together. Um, the Eldads and Medads, they don't have the ducks in a row. It's not that they don't want to have their ducks in a row. It's not that they're rebellious or stubborn or independent. They're just wired a little bit differently. They may be unorthodox, but they have a right heart, and that's what God sees. And God is raising up Eldads and Medads in every generation. And maybe they're not perfectly plumb or they're not perfectly orthodox, but God is including them into the leadership equation. You know, when Samuel was anointing David to be king, he almost got fooled because he was looking at the outward appearance. But God says that he sees not as man sees, which is to look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Moses was able to discern him to be able to understand, okay, something is going on with these two, even though they're not at the commissioning service. The second thing that we see here is that they prophesied outside of the tent while they were in the, in the camp. So not all of God's prophetic purposes happen in the tent. Many times it happens out there. And God can draw the boundaries wherever he wants it. In fact, this is what Jesus told the Samaritan. This is what happened with Jesus at the Samaritan, or at the well, when he was engaging with the Samaritan woman. He said to her, An hour is coming when you don't know. <clears throat> pardon me, an hour is coming where you don't need to be in Jerusalem. You don't need to be in a synagogue service. You can be out there and God can move. So Moses and the 68, after their commission, they actually go back into the camp. And they include Eldad and Medad. And I, I just think that's such a, a beautiful picture of how they brought them into their leadership fellowship and included them. And um, again, it just shows the, the sensitivity of prophets to see beyond the natural eye. And there's, there's so much religion that's around us. Prophets are actually called to be prophets of grace. And Jesus said that the prophets of old, they saw the grace of God and prophesied about that. So why is it that we have in our heads that prophets are, you know, religious or legalistic or when actually they're called to trumpet the grace of God? So they not only trumpet the grace of God, but they also demonstrate the grace of God. And this is what we see Moses doing with Eldad and Medad, bringing them into the community of leadership, even though they made a mistake right at the very beginning. Another thing I want to point out about Moses is that prophets embrace humility as the foundation of their ministry. Prophets embrace humility as the foundation of their ministry. So let me read this verse to you in Numbers chapter 12. 
1 to 3, Miriam and Aaron. So those were Moses' sister and brother. So how many know the birth order of those three? Who is the oldest? Aaron. Aaron. Oh, no, Miriam. Miriam. And then who is older between Aaron and Moses? Aaron. Okay, so Moses is number three. So Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. So they're coming against their own younger brother. Why? Because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. This was not the politically correct thing to do. Moses had married outside the Hebrew race. He was in a mixed marriage. And so Miriam and Aaron are thinking, okay, we're going to establish this new nation in the promised land, and the head of our nation is in a mixed marriage. This is not good. So they're criticizing Moses, and in verse 2 it in, in verse 2, it says that they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? So Aaron and Miriam are saying, Listen, we're as good a leader as you guys, you know, and you're disqualified to some degree because of the marriage status that you're in. Scripture says the Lord heard it. Now, here was Moses' response Moses the man was very humble, more than any man who is on the face of the earth. So Moses' brother and sister were very upset at him, and they challenged his leadership and tried to overthrow him. And after seeing all that God had done through Moses, it's hard to believe that they actually tried to challenge their brother. And Moses could have easily gotten mad at them. He could have been hurt that his own siblings were challenging him. Maybe they thought they could pull rank because he was their younger brother. But that's not how Moses responded. He responded with humility. And so as the story goes on, it tells us how God came to vindicate Moses. Moses didn't play the fame card. Do you know who I am? Do you know what God's done through me? I can't believe that you're challenging me. But being a prophet is an interesting thing because it naturally draws a lot of attention. When I first began going to Taiwan with my mentor in the prophetic, Keith Hazel, this was almost 25 years ago now. And the nation of Taiwan had been racked with false prophetic ministry. People saying, okay, China's going to attack you. You know, it's like the prophecies you hear about California, how it's going to just split off and fall into the ocean. Were there a lot of, of these prophecies that were coming? You know, China's going to invade Taiwan. And so the leaders in the churches didn't know what to do or how to process these things. And there were a lot of prophecies around Jesus coming back, you need to get ready. And so a couple of leaders said, you know, we need to try to bring in healthy prophetic ministry. And so when we started going um, 25 years ago, there was such a curiosity around, okay, what actually are prophets supposed to do? Well, the things that people latched onto the most was the, the prophesying part. And in Asia, unfortunately, they see prophets as fortune tellers. And so this is a huge thing that we have to teach people, that we're not sanctified fortune tellers. Just because we're doing this inside the church, it doesn't mean that, you know, this is just fortune telling. But it took years and years for this teaching to really take hold. And to some degree, it has to be retaught again and again. But what happened is that the people just began rushing to these meetings by the tens and hundreds and even thousands. There, there were times where, I mean, truth be told, I felt like just like Jesus, like the people would just crush in on us because they wanted to get a word from us. And 
So being a, a prophet is, is kind of a, you're put in a unique situation because you're put in such a public place. You have a public platform. The spotlight is on you. And you, it could easily go to your head. But in the case of Moses, this is not what happened. He embraced humility as a foundation of his ministry. And is as fun as it may seem to be a prophet and deliver God's messages to God's people, it really is an office with great responsibility. And any time I'm called to minister prophetically, I have a great fear and trembling. Many times I just go, oh, I can't believe I'm in this situation. Lord, please get me out of it. Um, I always have to confess my inadequacy and, and my dependency on, he, on him. Uh, you know, because people make decisions based on words that you give to them. So it's a bit overwhelming to think that people are putting that much stock in the things that you're saying to them. And so we see here that, that Moses was in this vaunted place because of his prophetic ministry, and yet he didn't use it as a way to uh, do a power play and say Mo, uh, you know, to his brother and sister, you're just stupid, you know, what are you doing? Rather, he just humbled himself and allowed God to address the situation. Another way to say this is that prophets embrace brokenness above their own fame. Prophets embrace brokenness above their own fame. Another thing here to highlight about Moses is that prophets love God more than their own calling. Prophets love God more than their own calling. As we go on and see <clears throat> the life of Moses being played out in these passages, <clears throat> Numbers 12, verses 6 through 8, <clears throat> talks about how the Lord used to speak to Moses mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. So this is an amazing thing, and, and partly the reason why Moses had such authority is because the conversation between Moses and God was just that intimate. It was like a friend, person to person, mouth to mouth. And it speaks to the deep intimacy and friendship that Moses uh, had with God. Of course, in Exodus 33, we see the, that Moses pitched his own tent. The cloud would come down, and people could visually see that the glory of God was resting upon the tent of Moses, and the people would stand uh, whenever this would happen. And the Bible says that the Lord would speak to Moses just as a man would speak to his friend. And so for the prophet, intimacy with God is the most precious thing that he possesses. They love God because he's God, not because he has given them a calling to be a prophet. Now, how do we know this? Because Moses didn't want to be a prophet. He said to God, I'm, I'm slow of tongue. He vehemently resisted his call. He asked God to send his older brother Aaron instead. And so for Moses, the important thing was his closeness to God, not his role in God. Let me say that again. For Moses, the important thing was his closeness to God, not his role in God. And that's a sign of a mature prophet. Um, early years when God began to restore just the teaching of the prophetic office, there were people prophesying all the time, and you could tell that they were getting their identity by just being one that could be recognized. And... This was not the case with Moses. He was like, what's most important to me is my ten time. If God calls me to be a prophet, okay, reluctantly, I will do that. But that foundation is so, so important. A couple other things here, and then we'll just wrap up. 
Number four, prophets love the church more than their own ministry. Prophets love the church more than their own ministry. In Numbers 14, the Lord was so angry with the unbelief of the Israelites. God said, I'm going to take you into the land of milk and honey. I've shown you my great hand. I've split the Red Sea. So you would think that the people would have great faith, that God is able to do what he says they're going to do. And yet they're continuing to complain. And so God finally says to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I mean, this is, you know, pretty fierce. And the Lord then says this to Moses, I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. This is an amazing statement that God is making to Moses. The people want to go back to Egypt because of the bad report. The Lord gets angry with them and then says to Moses, I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Well, what would that look like? Just think about this for a second. What would happen to the 12 sons of Jacob? Right? God specifically called Abraham, then there was Isaac, then there was Jacob, then there's the 12 sons, and all of a sudden God says, I'm going to do away with that whole family line. The very people that I have formed to come out and to live and to be my representative nation, now I'm going to replace them with you. So what? Moses' sons are now going to be the heir apparents? Would he just obliterate the lineage of Jacob's sons? How would that have worked? And so the offer that God was giving to Moses was absolutely insane. But Moses said, I don't want to be a great nation. And how many of us could have resisted such an opportunity? How many of us could have said no to an invitation? And yet this is exactly what Moses did. He loved the people of God more dearly than the opportunity to have even a greater call. Prophets love the church more than their own ministry. Prophets love the church more than... It's not about me. It's not about my reputation. It's not about my platform. It's all about God and His glory. So prophets love the church. They're called to build up the bride, to make her beautiful without spot or wrinkle. In fact, Moses said, Lord, please forgive them, and if you need to blot my name out of the book of life, do that. There's only two people in all the Bible that said, take my name out of the book of eternal life. It was Paul, and it was Moses. So that's just so challenging in terms of understanding the depth of love that God wants us to have. Of course, only Jesus was allowed to actually follow through with that. Last point here is that um, prophets love the written word above the spoken word. Numbers 15, Moses is reminding the people to stay faithful to the word of God. And so this passage says that... The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout the generations, and that they shall put on the tassels on each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at. Remember all the commandments of God so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes so that you remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So if you've seen sort of the 
Old Testament renditions of the garments they wore, you know, they had these tassels on them that were made of blue. And every time they touched the tassel or they saw the tassel, it was a reminder for them to ponder and to meditate on God's commandments. So when Moses commanded the people to make these garments, he was telling them of the central place that the law must have in their lives. They were to love and treasure and obey the commandments all the days of their life. In other words, they must love the written word above all things. In this, Moses was teaching that as powerful as a prophet's spoken word may be, they love the written word above the prophetic word. And so this passage was basically a retelling of Exodus 20 where the, where the law was given. And when 40 years of wandering in the desert came to an end, Moses was saying to the nation as he was about to turn the leadership over to Joshua, this is your priority. Did you know that the word Deuteronomy means repetition of the law? So it, right there in the title, Moses is teaching the people, this is what you have to repeat to yourself over and over again. You need to think about this. You need to ponder it. A lot of times we think we can get something after just one hearing or one exposure, but no, we just have to be exposed again and again and again. But modern-day prophets can place such a premium on their own prophetic word, even to the point sometimes that they think it's above and beyond the written word. Now, again, this is such a foundational truth for us. We would, you know, it's hard for us to imagine that prophets who wouldn't claim that. But there are people and there are prophetic ministries that claim that. They are claiming they have new revelation that God is giving in the last hour for the body of Christ. So they'll come and preach and say, this is what God is showing me. And this is, in one sense, extra biblical or extra revelation that's on top of the word of God. That's heresy, right? That's complete error. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so one of the best tests of real prophets is if they love the written word above the spoken word. Nothing supersedes the authority of the Bible. In fact, prophets should be extremely sound in doctrine and sound in theology. But the reputation of many prophets is actually the opposite. They're loosey-goosey. They don't know their Bibles. But in fact, prophets should be very strong in the Bible. They're the ones, in one sense, that are, are guardians of the Word of God, calling the people back to the standard and the pattern of God's truth. We can actually define revival in that way. It's to get back to God's living Word. So in that sense, prophets are just faithful retellers of the Word, nothing more and nothing less. So prophets are sensitive to God's hearts and purposes. They embrace humility as a foundation of their ministry. They love God more than their own calling. They love the church more than their own ministry. And they love the written word above the spoken word. So with these two little profiles this morning between Barnabas and Moses, we see how they had the same spirit. They had a kindred spirit. Moses loved the nation of Israel. And so the new Israel in the New Testament times or the New Covenant is the church. So in the same way that Moses loved Israel, we see Barnabas loving the church. In the same way that Moses was humble and was amongst the people and didn't want to exalt himself above the people but was a servant leader, we also see how Barnabas was amongst the people and was a servant leader. In the same way that, that Moses constantly pointed people to the truth of God and who he was, we see as well Barnabas doing the same thing. He took the apostles' teaching and he turned around and he retaught that and re-emphasized that to the new congregation 
among the Gentiles at Antioch. And so we see this beautiful connection between Moses. We see this beautiful connection between Barnabas. And there is not a difference in their spirit. So this helps us to um, see accurately and to see properly what prophets are about, the spirit that they have, the priorities that they have. Um, and when we begin to see it in detail in this way, this helps us to say, okay, now I can have confidence in the prophetic ministry. Now I can rest safely in my soul that when prophets come in, this is something from God. Right? Because of the fivefold prophets, the general body of Christ, they believe in evangelists, they believe in teachers, they believe in shepherds, but they don't believe in the apostles and prophets. Why is it they don't believe in the apostles and prophets? Because the teaching is not accurate and because they tend to associate, well, if you're an apostle, that must mean you're equating yourself to the original 12 or you're equating yourself to the prophets of old. But that's not what God is saying, right? There is an ongoing tradition, an ongoing caring for of that anointing into the local church and the body of Christ.